The communion of saints is what each of us has in common with all other believers. When the Apostles' Creed speaks of communion, it refers to believers in the past, believers in the present, and believers in the years to come, sharing a common salvation in our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Join Pastors Kirk Sexton and Bruce Johnson as we discuss the mystical nature of the Church and the blessings we have in common with all other believers. Welcome to the Full Dig Podcast. I'm Pastor Kirk Sexton, and with me is my colleague and good friend, Pastor Bruce Johnson. Great to be with you, Kirk. Bruce, you were uh, in the contemporary service on Sunday. I was, and it was great. Uh, the praise band was really sounding good and uh, really a worshipful atmosphere. It yeah. was nice. And you were in the traditional worship service right. at nine. Yes, and we had uh, Andy's cousin sing. Oh, wasn't that wonderful? Singing the... Uh, the Apostles, Apostles Creed, Creed in yeah. Korean. Right. And uh, got a standing ovation afterwards. People are so moved by that. Right. Yeah. He was uh, he was terrific. So really nice gift to have. And Andy Lynn uh, introduced me before the service and was saying that uh, it's been a long time since those cousins were together. So he's oh. really enjoying the family time they've all had together. Oh, that's great. Well, and it was perfect for the, uh, the communion of the saints and we're talking about the church to have a different voice in worship like those Koreans. Yeah, and uh, the Korean, one of the gifts that the Koreans, uh, Christians have given to the rest of the Christians around the world is the emphasis of prayer. They're mm -hmm. really big about spending time together in prayer. Mm -hmm. So I really have always admired uh, that aspect of Korean Christians in worship. And many of them are Presbyterians. I met, uh, I think it must have been, was it Andy's uncle? was a Presbyterian pastor, and he was the moderator of his presbytery, and I think he's retired now. But Is that right? Yeah. The, there were uh, a number of uh, Presbyterian missionaries uh, to Korea mm -hmm. going back more than a century ago, uh, several generations of the Moffat family and others that uh, I've been able to meet. So mm -hmm. both uh, descendants from uh, Presbyterian missionaries and, of course, uh, many generations of Korean Presbyterians. And they have huge Korean churches there. Right. Uh, largest Presbyterian church in the world is in Korea. Wow. Well, um, Pastor Steve chose Hebrews 12, 1 through 2, and I'll read that text. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and the sin that clings so closely. And let us run with perseverance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith, who for the sake of the joy that was set before him endured the cross, disregarding its shame, and has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of God. A marvelous reminder of how we're connected in Jesus Christ, and really connected three ways in this passage. Mm. We're connected to Christ, you know, our pioneer and perfecter of our faith. We're connected with believers who have gone before us. That's that great cloud of witnesses, mm -hmm. the heroes of faith that are in Hebrews chapter 11. Mm. And Pastor Steve made reference to that in his sermon. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, we're connected to one another. That's why the charge is not to you guys, but all of us. Let's, mm -hmm. let's all run this race together. Mm. And a New Testament word that's used for that connection we have uh, with one another and with Christ 
is the word kononia, hmm. which is a Greek word, but now it's become an English word as well to talk about the special bond of connection, the special fellowship we have as Christians. And that word kononia in the New Testament is used over 40 times uh, as a noun or in its adjectival form or its a verbal form. Hmm. And it's used all sorts of ways of, of being connected. Here in the book of Hebrews, it's used in Hebrews chapter 2 in the sense of how Christ has shared in our flesh and blood. So in Hebrews chapter 2, they're talking about how uh, God has called together this family and that uh, Christ shares in uh, flesh and blood, the, you know, became a real human being like we are human beings. It says there in uh, chapter 2, verse 14, since therefore the children share flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared, and there's that word koinonia, the same things. So that connection in Christ. And it's used different ways in the New Testament, koinonia. And then we see also in Hebrews another way of describing it. He says uh, in Hebrews 10, 32 through 33, but recall those earlier days when you had been enlightened, you had endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to insults and afflictions, and sometimes becoming partners with those so treated. So we share in the sense of um, share one another's burdens in Christ. And, and when we suffer, we're sharing in sufferings of others. And when other Christians suffer, we, we suffer along with them. And it's used in the sense of it's kind of a negative sense where Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew, he's talking about how we have a connection with those who've gone before us. And Jesus uses it in a negative sense, talking to people that did not believe in him and his ministry. So he says, and this is from Matthew chapter 23, verses 30 and 31. And I say, if you had lived, or and you say, if we had lived in the days of our ancestors, we would have not have taken part with them. And that taking part with them is that word koinonia, in the shedding of the blood of the prophets. So you testify against yourselves that you are descendant of those who murdered the prophets. Uh, again, that sense of koinonia, sharing with those, sharing in what Christ has experienced, sharing what we experience with other Christians, and sharing with generations in the past. And then finally, in Acts 2, we have some words about newly baptized believers. And it says that they, um, I think it's they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. So this sense of connectedness is very important, a very important concept in the New Testament. And when we use that phrase, the communion of saints, we're talking about that connectedness. Mm -hmm. And I think Steve even said in his sermon that it might be if we were to write it today, we might not use communion, we might use fellowship. Exactly. Uh, a very common way koinonia is translated now. And Pastor Steve also made the uh, comments and clarifications that saints are not perfect people. Mm -hmm. uh, that word saint uh, in Greek hagios is just things that are set apart. And we have things set apart in our homes, you know. We mm -hmm. have decorations for different holidays we set apart and then bring out for those holidays that's set apart. Right. And we've been set apart by God in Christ mm -hmm. to be his own people. 
Well, this is where we depart from Catholic brothers and sisters on this because they see it very differently that the uh, the the one church, the communion of of the saints is uh, well, sainthood in general, they look at very different. And then also they kind of have this thinking that if you're in the church, you're you're okay, you know, that's you know, as long as you're in the church. Of course, that means we're outside the church. Well, it's kind of like what kind of plates do you use when you eat your meals? Uh, Lori's mom had uh, some special china that she set aside for uh, just special things. And when she passed on, we, we received that china. We gave it to our daughter, Megan. And now those are her everyday dishes. Mm-hmm. So it's, you know, what are, who are the saints? Are they the special once in a while china or are they the everyday dishes? Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, I guess we as Protestants think that the saints are the everyday dishes. All of us are, are the saints. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, each week we've had some area of archaeology, and uh, I can't imagine you found anything that would be enlightening for us this week. Well, thinking about the communion of saints, I started thinking about uh, old churches. What are the oldest churches we've ever uh, found in archaeological digs? Mm-hmm. I was on an excavation in Jerusalem. Part of it was um, uncovering a Byzantine church. The Byzantine period is from 325 A.D. to 640 A.D., at least it is in the um, Middle East. So something that's pre-Byzantine is a pretty old church. Mm-hmm. And lo and behold, in the town of Aqaba in southern Jordan, we found what may be the oldest purpose-built church that's ever been uncovered. Aqaba is pretty remote. If you've seen the movie Lawrence of Arabia, you may remember a scene where he is crossing the desert to get to Aqaba, a strategic port uh, that's able to help control the Red Sea, and he makes that. And Aqaba is really in the boonies, or at least was, until modern roads were built and airports and things like that. And because it's so isolated, there is a church there that uh, we think is from the 2nd century A.D., and then was not uh, disturbed by some of the early Christian persecutions in that second century. Um, and you look at it, it looks like a basilica church. Instead of a central aisle, it has two side aisles. Mm-hmm. It has a narthex, it has the raised uh, chancel area, and then behind that, it's called the uh, sanctuary where the choir would sing and things like that. Mm. Uh, a remarkable preservation of an ancient church. And uh, thinking not about that church, but the Byzantine church that uh, I excavated in Jerusalem, uncovering the tessera, the tile of the floor there, just made me think of my connection with those Christians who've gone before us. So I I think that might be a a good example from archaeology to help us remember people have been worshiping Jesus a long time, and we're connected with them. I thought you were going to go with relics, you know, some of the saints of the past that, you know, they have a bone or they have some, yeah. some you know, some kind of relic that they, um, that people would go on pilgrimages to see the relics of these different cathedrals. It, it was a whole different way of understanding holiness. Yeah. So yeah. if you're going to dedicate a church, what would make it holy? Right. Well, you have to have some connection with something else that's holy. And that's why you began to have 
uh, in Byzantine churches and later churches, a sense of we need something holy, the uh, the relics, the bones, or, or something that was in the possession or, or, or some of the remains of something that was holy. And that will make our local church holy. And they'd even build these spaces where you could, there was a hole where you could put your finger in and touch the bones of the saint that had somebody that was really close to God. Mm-hmm. And that that would make the connection that you can be close to God too. Mm-hmm. Very different way than we think about uh, becoming holy today and what's involved in that. Yeah, It's not touching bones. It's something else. That's interesting because when I was in the Vatican, I went to their, I don't know what they call their main worship space there. Do you know? Oh, St. Peter's? Yeah. yeah. I guess that is St. Peter's yes. Basilica. Right. Mm-hmm. So they have, um, there's a statue there that it's, it's carved granite. And I think it's the, is it the Pieta? That's carved marble. But marble, yeah. yeah. yeah right. But everybody wants to touch it so that there's parts of it that is, it's worn away from people touching this, the statue. Isn't that remarkable? That, that connection. Yeah, yeah. And yet we have that sense of um, going to a certain place where we feel especially close to God, whether that's up in the mountains, a uh, place where we've been to uh, retreat, mm-hmm. uh, summer camp, or in other times when we spent more time in prayer and worship with other Christians. And uh, there's a sense of, boy, it's a special place. Mm-hmm because of uh, closeness to God that we feel in that place. And of course, we have that sense when we gather and worship here at uh, Mountain View or at our South Campus or a Midtown Campus, uh, being together with uh, other people, trying to follow Jesus, on uh, worshiping and praying together, and praying for one another, encouraging each other, um, gathered I holiness. I, I know that I've known some people that have had that kind of connection with Christian camps Right. Yeah. yeah. That it's like holy ground. Exactly. Yeah. Well, Kirk, what can we draw from our um, confessional statements of eco that will help us uh, get a sense of the communion of the saints? Well, today we'll look at uh, the Heidelberg Catechism and the Westminster Confession. Question 55 of the Heidelberg Catechism says, what do you understand by the communion of saints? And the answer is, first, all believers shall share in one fellowship as partakers of the Lord Christ and all his treasures and gifts. Second, each one ought to know that he or she is obliged to use his or her gifts freely and with joy for the benefit and welfare of other members. So really concentrating of two of those three ways that we understand the communion of the saints, our communion with Christ and the benefits we draw from that, and then our communion with one another and how we're really for one another. That's the priesthood of all believers. That that concept is sometimes called, not that I'm a priest for myself, I'm a priest for others and other people are priests for me. That is, they can pray for me, they can encourage me, they can help me uh, get back on my feet and following Jesus again. I'm going through a rough patch. Right. I, I like that one. That was a pretty good uh, reminder for us. Well, the Westminster Confession has a whole section on the communion of saints, yeah. uh, and it's divided into three different paragraphs. The first of those paragraphs in the Westminster Confession on the communion of saints says, 
all saints being united to Jesus Christ their head, by his Spirit and by faith, have fellowship with him in his graces, sufferings, death, resurrection, and glory. And, being united to one another in love, they have communion in each other's gifts and graces, and are obliged to the performance of such duties, public and private, as to conduce their mutual good, both in the inward and outward person. That's um, a couple of those first three we talked about. Yeah, and, and uh, really a retelling of what we find in the Heidelberg Catechism. Mm. Number two says, Saints by their profession are bound to maintain a holy fellowship and communion in the worship of God and in the performing of such other spiritual services as tend to their mutual edification, as also in relieving each other in outward things, according to their several abilities and necessities, which communion, as God offers opportunity, is to be extended to all those who, in every place, call upon the name of the Lord Jesus. In other words, our connection is not just to the Christians that we know in our own parish, our own local congregation, but for we are really connected to all Christians all over the globe. Right. That's good. Number three, this communion with which the saints have with Christ does not make them in any wise partakers of the substance of his Godhead or to be equal with Christ in any other respect, either of which to affirm is impious and blasphemous. Nor does their communion one with another as saints take away or infringe the title or property which each person has in goods and possessions. Hmm. In other words, a couple of caveats there, you know, um, having communion with Christ doesn't make us part of the Trinity ourselves. Mm -hmm. And uh, just because we have communion with each other doesn't mean that we can't have a book that just belongs to us or, you know, a a favorite dish or cup or what have you. Mm. Yeah. Well, each week we've been looking at a different apostle and uh, today, my notes say bonus. A bonus apostle, bonus right? Bonus apostle. Because uh, we've been looking at uh, different phrases in the Apostles' Creed that are associated with different apostles. And uh, the communion of the saints is tied to uh, two lines of the Apostles' Creed. So we've got to throw in extra apostle, and today we're throwing in the Apostle Paul. Now, Kirk, what do we know about the Apostle Paul? What comes to mind when you think of him? I well, first I think of evangelist, you mm-hmm. know, and uh, and also a prolific writer. Yeah, we're wrote, so grateful to Paul's writing. He wrote about half the New Testament, right? Yeah. And his ministry was far-reaching in the, you know, in the ancient Near East, and and uh, I just think. Uh, I don't know what I don't know what our church would be without Paul, right? And he had a pretty rough way of coming into the church, right? He was 180 degrees opposed mm-hmm. to Jesus. Yes, trying to round up people who are following Christ and get them imprisoned. And right, it was okay if they got killed along the way. Right, and then uh, God met him in the road to Damascus. This amazing experience that was totally unexpected for him. It took him a while to figure out what in the world is going on. Right. Wait, 
this Jesus that I've been opposing, he's the real deal. Yeah. Oh wait, I, I, I got to stop and figure this out for a while. Right. Uh, yeah. His, um, his letters to the churches are just such a gift to us because there's a lot of really good theology in those letters too, especially Romans. You know, you think of that. Yeah. And Paul's a great example of people that have overcome. You know, he had some infirmity. He talks about that thorn in the flesh, and we're not exactly sure what that was. But he prayed to be delivered from that, and he never was. He was just given the grace to endure that, which sometimes happens uh, in our lives. God can uh, either find a way for us through something or around something, but sometimes it's just being in one place, maybe that we don't want to be, but God's there with us. And so Paul's an example for us in that patience and endurance in the midst of adversity. Yeah, just just a great gift to the church. So each week, we've also had a quote from C.S. Lewis, and what do you have for us today? Well, I thought I would give a selection of different things from Lewis's letters after his friend Charles Williams died. Mm. So Charles Williams was a fellow Christian, a fellow writer, and Lewis was close to him, and he died very suddenly at the end of World War II and just devastated Lewis. And so Lewis talks about the way that even though Charles Williams was dead, he still felt a connection to him. So Mm. I've got uh, several snippets from his letters. So uh, this is uh, from a letter he wrote to one of his former students, Mary Neelan. Charles Williams' death has made my faith ten times stronger than it was a week ago. And I find all that talk about feeling he is closer to us than before isn't just talk. It's just what it does feel like. I can't put it in words. Hmm. Uh, Two days later, he's writing to uh, another friend. And he says, my friendship is not ended. I believe in the next life ten times more strongly than I did. At moment, it seems almost tangible. A month ago, I would have called this silly sentiment. Now I know better. Charles Williams seems, in some indefinable way, to be all around us now. I do not doubt that he is doing and will do for us all sorts of things he could not have done while he was in the body. Mm. And then about a week later, uh, writing to uh, Sister Penelope, one of his uh, longtime friends, It has made the next world much more real and palatable. We all feel the same. I have often heard of widows and bereaved mothers who felt that he was now nearer to them than while in the body and always thought it a sentimental hyperbole. I know better now. And then finally, this is about a month after Charles Williams died. It has increased enormously one's faith in the next life. I can't help feeling him, Charles Williams, all over the place. So those are examples of Lewis having that sense we are connected with those who've gone before us. Mm. And it it doesn't end when our friends die. Connection's still there. You know, I run the Grief Share program, and I've heard similar sentiments from our people who have gone through the course and they share that kind of nearness with the loved ones that have gone. Yeah, in some ways I feel closer to my father now than I did while he was alive. I've just, uh, I think about him often and uh, fondly. Mm. So I have that sense. I've experienced some of that myself. Well, you know, I have a reform quote 
and it's uh, it's going back to the old well. Um, there's this is J.R. Packer's uh, Growing in Christ book. R.C. Sproul was pretty silent on the matter of the communion of saints. Hmm. He talked a lot about that first article, um, the church and uh, the Holy Spirit forming the church and those kinds of things. But he, he kind of stayed away from the sainthood conversation in his books. And I would think J.R. Packer would comment on that more. He was one of the uh, small group of people that put together Christianity today. Uh, so he's very concerned about being connected with other Christians. Yeah. And he's he's done some work in ecumenical circles, too. So yes, there's mm-hmm. uh, anyway, he's he's talking about just the differences between Roman Catholics and Protestants. And well, J.I. Packer in Growing in Christ says that some Protestants have taken the clause, the communion of saints, which follows the Holy Catholic Church as the creed's own elucidation, which is a clarification of what the church is, namely Christians in fellowship with each other, just that, without regard for any particular hierarchical structure. But it is usual to treat this phrase as affirming the real union in Christ of the church, the church militant here on earth, the church triumphant, as is indicated in Hebrews 12, 22 through 24. And it may be that the clause was originally meant to signify communion in holy things, word, sacrament, worship, prayer, and to make the true but distinct point that in the church there is a real sharing in the life of God. The spiritual view of the church as being a fellowship before it is an institution can, however, be confirmed from Scripture without appeal to this phrase, whatever sense being needed. So Not it, easy to read. No, no. So is it a different thing than the Holy Catholic Church to talk about the communion of the saints? Or is it going a little bit further and saying something different, not just about what the church is, but uh, what we experience together as fellow Christians, sharing in things that are holy and good, sharing in prayer, sharing in worship, sharing in uh, drawing strength and wisdom from our lives from Scripture, sharing in the blessings of Christ's real presence uh, in the Holy Spirit, and as we gather in his name. Well, Calvin, you know, said that the church is basically where the word is preached, right? Rightly preached, right. and the, and the uh, proper, proper administration of the sacraments. That's how he defined the church. But others define the church as where the Spirit is. Some have argued that it's where the bishop is, right? Right. Yeah. So if you want to know more about that, re-listen to our previous podcast. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, Bruce, uh, would you close us in prayer today? Love to. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for that connection that we have with one another because of Jesus. Thank you for the connection we have with your Son, our Savior, and trusting in him and being led by him. And we thank you for all the Christians who have gone before us, who have uh, guided us, and Christians that were faithful to you 
through persecution and trial. Lord, thank you for our being your people together. Help us to encourage one another to keep on following you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Bruce. Thank you, Kirk.